Hello and welcome to the Honest Property Investment Podcast. My name is Natasha Collins and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm also the founder of NC Real Estate, which is my firm of surveyors that helps landlords and property investors build mixed use and commercial property portfolios through my asset management strategy. Hi, everybody. I'm really excited. This week, we have such a fabulous guest. I've invited Kath Fontana, who is the president of the RICS. Need I say any more? The interview was fantastic. I was so excited to speak to her and we just talked on an honest level about everything that's going on in the property industry right now, her career to date, how she has time to do everything that she does, because as well as being president, she's got a full-time job as a surveyor and where she sees the industry going. So watch this space. It's coming up very shortly. As always, I wanted to check in with you just to start off with, with some tips and tricks that I have been looking at this week. As I allude to in the start, I run a firm of surveyors. Part of my job is to put together strategies for other property investors. And we do that in the members club. And I, every week, I spend a little bit of time going through each of our members' strategies just to try and problem solve, really, because that's what it's all about. Once you've got a strategy in place that you can use, run with, work with, then you know what you're doing month in, month out. So, for example, we start off by um, asking our members to give us everything about them. We want to go in depth. We want to know the details of what their property portfolio is doing at the moment. And we want to know what their goals are. Then I tell ask them to tell me what type of property portfolio they want to build, whether that's got an element of residential, HMO, serviced accommodation, mixed use, commercial, other, I just want a percentage. How much of your portfolio do you want for each of those different property types? Then from that, we've got enough information that we can start putting together a strategy and what's going to happen month in, month out to hit your goals. And what I do is I encourage members to start putting together the strategy which has their current properties. So we show the income that their current properties are making. Then we forecast out all the properties that we need to buy from that dream portfolio and we put them in the strategy. What's left from that is we can start to see the problems or the challenges or hurdles that need to be overcome to get to that uh, investor hitting their goals. For example, it may be that the properties that the investor wants to buy, once we've bought them all, it doesn't actually hit their income goals because we have to factor in tax, we have to factor in paying back pensions. So we need to um, think about how... um, how we can add to that portfolio. What do we need to do? Should, do we need to be targeting um, higher yielding properties? Do we need to maneuver around the current property portfolio? You know, could we increase the rent so we can have a look at that on an individual property basis, but also on an overall portfolio basis as well? So we look at that. Um, 
one of the particular properties that property portfolios that I'm looking at right now and I've got the spreadsheet in front of me is that we have a cash problem. We need to find money to inject into this portfolio to be able to buy the additional eight properties that this property investor uh, wants to get. Now, the good thing about these strategies is that I can see on a monthly basis uh, what the investor wants to do, you know, so when they want to buy the next property, how much that's going to create and how much of a pre-tax salary they want to take from the portfolio as well. So we factor that all in. So for example, I know that um, in October 2021, this portfolio is going to be short by about £13,000. So I need to factor in the fact that um, in October, for example, we need to find £13,000. So I can I can ask the investor, you know, would you be able to get that? Do we need to raise that from somewhere? Do we need investor finance? I can then see that in January 2022, to buy the next property, we will be about £38,000 short. So again, I can look into that. Where can we raise it within the portfolio? So I can start going along and kind of highlight the deficits in this portfolio, where we need to get cash from, can we manoeuvre around equity? So we work backwards. We look at the end goal. We look at, okay, do these properties that you want to buy hit your financial goals? And then we look at how much money do we need to raise along the way? You're not going to need to raise it all at once because, of course, you're not going to be buying all of these properties altogether. There's going to be a period of searching time. There's going to be a period of reflection. There's going to be, obviously, the conveyancing process. So using this strategy, I can map out when we need to find our clients' money and how we're going to do that. And because I've mapped out all of the previous portfolio, I can look and see if there's any equity that we can take from within the portfolio, maybe um, maneuver around some mortgages. So what I want you to take away from this is that you have to work backwards, work with your goals in mind. What do your goals look like? What does that portfolio look like? Map it backwards. How much money are you going to need to get there? How does your current property portfolio look? And how can you maneuver that property portfolio around so that you hit your goals. All right, that's how it works. So without further ado, we're going to take a quick break and listen to what Lionheart offers us. And then we'll be back after the break with the day in the life of the surveyor. And then we'll be moving on to the fabulous interview with Kath Fontana. Lionheart is the RICS's own benevolent fund, a charity that supports members of the RICS and their partners. They were established in 1899, so they have over 120 years of experience of supporting the surveying profession. Lionheart is separate from the RICS and a totally independent organisation and registered charity. They help RICS professionals, the life partner of chartered surveyors, as well as APC candidates and have also recently expanded their support to surveying apprentices and students. Now, you're probably wondering, how can they help? Well, they provide training in the form of free workshops and webinars, and they operate helplines through which you can access different types of support. They have over 30 workshops and webinars and a range from financial well-being, career and personal development, APC and post-APC webinars. The helpline service is bespoke to each person who calls as they try to offer a sort of package or service that suits your needs. 
Some of the services and support that we offer are professional counselling, coaching for a particular issue or challenge, legal advice, help returning to work or developing career after a period of not working, financial grants and general support. All of their services are free and to find out more, please visit their website www.lionheart.org.uk. This week's Dana Life of the Surveyor is Andy Dodson. Andy and I are very good friends. We met at UCM. He's now the course leader for construction management at Solent University, Southampton. He has a very interesting career from his time in the army to moving on to consulting. He is just a fabulous property professional. So without further ado, let me hand across to him. Your call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system. At the tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. Hi, my name is Andy Dodson. I'm going to give you an overview of what an average day in my life looks like. My current role is that of course leader for the Bachelor of Science Honours Degree in Construction Management, HNCs in Construction and Quantity Surveying at Solent University. Prior to moving into education in 2017, I had quite a broad ranging career, initially starting as an apprentice statue before joining the army as a plant operator. I then moved into the managerial side of construction in 2005 and spent the remainder of my career working on the military estate globally. Uh, roles include project management, building and infrastructure design, estate management, building surveying and cost management. In addition to my role at Solon University, I run my own company providing external verification services for the CIOB professional review process. I'm a governor at a local primary school and I'm a committee member at the CIOB Solent Hub. My day normally starts a little before nine o'clock, depending on if I'm teaching first thing or not. I teach a variety of different academic levels to quite a broad range of students, including construction managers, quantity surveyors, international students, and architectural technologists. Modules I've led this year include technology of buildings, contract admin and specification, construction practice and management of civil engineering projects. Teaching usually consists of an hour lecture on a topic prior to moving on to seminar tasks which will be one or two hours in length. Seminar tasks are a mixture of individual and group tasks which can take the form of building regulation familiarisation questions drawing, case studies or guided research, with students being provided feedback at the end of each session. COVID-19 has presented a lot of challenges this academic year with students who may not have ever experienced online learning now being fully submerged in it. This meant being quite creative in teaching methods and involves quite a lot of preparation. For example, previously, if you were teaching drawing, you could just run through producing a detail on a whiteboard, whereas now you have to produce it step by step on paper so that the students can follow along far easier. The students have embraced the challenge and they've really produced a lot of excellent work this year. When I'm not teaching, there are quite a few things to keep me busy. Lecture slides and seminar tasks need to be prepared and uploaded onto our online uh, learning platform, so online learning. I'll respond to forum posts and keep a track on it engagement to make sure nobody is uh, dropping behind. Students will contact me asking questions or for formative feedback and assignments. I'll also respond to them. 
One of the most enjoyable tasks I do is dissertation supervision. A dissertation really is a labour of love with students picking research topics that are close to their hearts or that offer potential career development opportunities. It's really great to see the knowledge of the topic increase over the year and also how they develop with their own independent research skills. As course leader, there's quite a bit of an external engagement to undertake. I organise work placements for full-time students, which allow them to gain invaluable work experience to really give them the edge when they're applying for their first job after graduation. We're really quite lucky with our industry connections. They offer job opportunities, placements, uh, and one recently has uh, provided 11 places on the site management safety training scheme course. So these are really excellent. We're very much focused on real world learning and assignments being based on proper active sites. So I also speak with my local main contractors about site visits and briefs, which we can use to support our students with. I also have one on eye on developing the students' professional networks. I organise meetings with the CIOB hub where members can support students by providing guidance on dissertations or taking the next steps after graduation by introducing them to the professional review process. Normally by now it's lunch, so I'll stop for a bite to eat and try to get out with my two dogs for a quick walk. In the afternoon, it's much the same, particularly if I'm not teaching. I've recently been carrying out planning for the next academic year, so I've been reviewing workload for the team to ensure sufficient time and the right resources are allocated to each module, which can be a little challenging when you've got 20 modules to cover each year. I've been planning assessment deadlines, which are really important as they need to be balanced to avoid overloading students. I'm also planning Welcome Week to ensure that new students are fully prepared for their time with us. When I'm not forward planning, there are the here and now tasks which also need to be completed. As an apprenticeship provider, we have to complete regular progress reviews with the students on this type of programme. And we also have other contractual up updates we need to provide to companies who are sponsoring students. My working day normally ends at five o'clock, uh, though it does depend on times tabled sessions and these can go on to 7pm. COB hub meetings are normally every couple of months, so I may be attending one of these or might have some external verification to carry out in the evening. Whilst I can't lie and say I don't miss being out on site, I find being in education exceptionally rewarding. Over the last four years, I've taught over 300 students and was previously the delivery manager for the largest chartered spare apprenticeship programme in the UK. I have to say it's really great being so heavily involved So today on the podcast, I'm really excited to have Kath Fontana. Hi, Kath. Thank you for coming. Hi, Natasha. Thanks for having me. So you currently have two roles or are you doing more things? Or I do have one extra role, actually. <laughs> I do have three roles. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, so, okay. So um, I'm managing director of uh, Mighty Projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, where I run a team of projects professionals and delivery uh, on behalf of Mighty, which is, um, for those that don't know, the biggest facilities management firm in the UK. And um, 
I'm obviously, um, I'm very privileged and honoured to be president of the Royal Institution of Charter Surveyors for the 2021 term. And I'm also a non-exec director of the UK BIM Alliance. Oh. So three kind of hats, really. Yeah. How? But they're all quite interlinked, so yeah. How do you run all three together? That's a really good question. Um, so... So, so firstly, all three are, are sort of symbiotic to some extent or another. Um, so, you know, one of the reasons I am president of the RICS is because I've got a lot of industry expertise, industry knowledge, um, would consider myself to be an expert in facilities management in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been absolutely involved in the development of industry standards from my practice and back to the RICS and, and back again. So... There's definitely synergy there in my, with my career and my presidential role. Um, UK BIM Alliance, um, I've been uh, passionately involved in BIM for a long time uh, in terms of trying to bridge the gap between construction and operations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, you know, clearly RICS has got a very strong um, interest in BIM as well for, for all the same reasons I have, which is, you know, making sure that we've got excellent data about our buildings that we understand how they operate that our design and construction and operational processes are all integrated so they all kind of fit together if you like um they all come together i think in terms of my passion for innovation and digital and transformation of the built environment i think that drives me in all three areas really so that's kind of do you see do I sleep? Um, I do sleep um, very well, thank you. I mean, <laughs> I'm a great believer in sleep. Yes. Uh, the best medicine, but um, I'm definitely better than any face cream is eight hours sleep. Yeah. But um, I have to say that obviously, especially being the president of RSS, it's a huge commitment. Yeah. I'm extremely dedicated and committed to my day job as well. So, you know, this year, and it's for one year only, so for this one year, um, I was always going to have to sacrifice quite a lot of my social life and hobbies or anything that I did outside work. So whilst the pandemic has certainly been extremely difficult for everybody in a weird sort of a way, I haven't missed out so much on everything because <laughs> I couldn't do anything anyway. Um, and actually, um, up till now anyway, I've been completely digital president. So I have not done anything in my presidential year face-to-face yet nothing wow. so in that way it's been a bit easier to kind of connect with people especially around the world so yesterday morning very early I was on the world regional board for Asia Pack. that would have been very difficult for me to do you know that would have been a flight it probably have taken me a week to to kind of do the whole round trip and so on so in some ways I think being the digital president has enabled me to talk to a lot more people, be a lot more inclusive, um, be on different time zones much easier. Um, so in a weird sort of a way, I think it's opened up the presidency a bit. I certainly feel like I've talked to a lot of people. Um, so, yeah, pros and cons, of course. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can we go back to how did you get into surveying? How did you know about surveying? What brought you into the industry? So I, I started off when I left university a long time ago. 
Um, I, I started off my career in social housing. Um, so I was um, an estates manager in social housing, working for um, a London borough. And um, I did my Chartered Institute of Housing, actually. Um, okay. Yeah, a long time ago. I don't have it anymore, uh, but a long time ago. But um, So I went for that. Um, but that I found that I was particularly interested in the built environment side of the job. Mm-hmm. There's kind of different sides to that sort of a role. A big part of it is the assets themselves, of course, the properties. Um, and I, um, I had a professional services contractor that were, I was a client, so I was client side, um, and eventually I went to work for them. And there were a lot of surveyors in that firm, all men, um, of course. I'm, I'm going back a long way now in time, but all men, pretty much. And lots of surveyors, architects, so on, because that's what they did. It's professional practice. Um, until one day, um, a woman surveyor turned up, and she was just doing it. She's my good friend now. We're very good friends to this day. And uh, she was doing her APC when I met her. And I, we just kind of got talking and got friendly. And I started to think, do you know what? I would really like to have a professional qualification in in the field of the built environment, in what I'm actually doing. Um, so I wasn't surveying at the time. I was more kind of commercial management um, stuff. But um, And it, it was never really open to me to become a surveyor until much later on in my career when I was probably about 14 or 15 years ago. Um, when the RICS launched the facilities management pathway. And so I'm quite a late entry surveyor. I did the professional experience route um, about 15 years ago and um, was absolutely thrilled to become a chartered surveyor finally because it had been a long-held goal. But it always felt like I would have to go back to university, do a surveying degree. And I just, you know, I've got my children are adult kids now, but I had two young kids and I was working full time. It just felt impossible to do another degree because I already had a degree, but it wasn't a cognitive degree. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, um, I think I think actually opening up that professional experience route gave me the chance to do it, which I jumped at. So I think pretty sure I was one of the first four people in, in the world to qualify as a facilities management surveyor. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was on the first ever cohort. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm really proud to be a surveyor. Really proud. It's something that's really important, obviously, but it's really important to me in my professional identity. I, I think so. I had uh, one of my candidates become a surveyor today. And oh, she's, she's just, I'm so proud. And she did the professional practice route to preliminary review okay is that right yeah so fabulous it's a it's a really lovely uh on LinkedIn when you see people um with their certificates and saying how proud they are and it's really surreal because I see those pictures and I see my name uh, because I my signature is on everybody's this year my signature is on everybody's certificate and I just think back to when I got my certificate 15 years ago and the name on that, and you just think, wow, you know, this is this is quite surreal. Um, so it's my name on that certificate, but I it's just wonderful just seeing I did um uh I did welcome to the profession when I was president elect before the COVID and it's the best day ever, honestly, being with those um new surveyors and their parents or their friends or whoever they bring with them and just 
coming up and collecting their scroll. It's just it's the best day ever. It's definitely such an achievement. It is a huge achievement. It's really hard work. Um and it's a huge achievement. And um yeah, I have utmost respect for anybody trying to do it or doing it because it's yeah. um such an achievement, yeah. Uh, so what how did you get from okay so you became a surveyor when did you find out you wanted to become president because that's a that's a rigmarole in itself isn't it you have to decide long before you become president well kind of yeah so um so so we'll go back to uh becoming a facilities management surveyor charter facilities management surveyor so the APC that I went through and um I was really frustrated by it if I'm honest I think a lot of people are quite frustrated when they do their APC it's not a unique experience but the thing that really frustrated me was that the competencies were clearly written by a QS or a building, and a building surveyor it was a bit of a mix between the two and there was a lot of it that just um, I just felt that there were so many other skills and competencies that facilities managers had that weren't represented in that suite of competencies. So I thought to myself, do you know what? I feel a responsibility as a facilities manager now, a chartered FM surveyor. I want to I want to influence that in the future so that other people were – not that it would be easier because I think the standard and the bar has got to be high, but that it would be more relevant to what we actually do in our bit of the profession – so I thought, well, if I get a chance to influence that, I'm going to do it. Um, and weirdly, a few months later, maybe six months later, um, the RICS was advertising for members of the Chartered Facility, uh, sorry, the FM Professional Group Board. And I just thought, oh, do you know what, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring. And I didn't think for one minute I'd be successful, but I was. Um, and so I joined that board and we did change the APC and we did a lot of other really great things as well. Um, and eventually I became chair of that board um, and I got involved in obviously more strategic things with the RICS then and I was also um, I was one of the people that brokered the IFMA deal and stuff like that so um, I remember being in San Diego doing the IFMA deal on a on a boat that had been converted into well it was a boat it was a warship that had been converted into a, a kind of social event thing and I remember standing there and saying to someone do you know what I, I, re- I really like what the RSS is doing I'm really I really want to do more to support the profession maybe I'll go for president one day and it was a bit in cheek and the person said you should you'd be a great president and actually I thought maybe I will then so uh I I got more involved with RSCS they they asked me to join the management board um which I applied for, and again, I didn't think I'd get it, but I was successful. Um, and, and I got more and more involved in the strategy and, um, you know, the, the way the RSS was developing, more and more interested. And then, so, of course, um, the the SVP elections come up every year. Um, and th- there came a point where I thought, well, I'm going to go for it then. I- I'm going to try. And so I did, and I just went for it. And I pulled together all my, and it is a rigmarole, and so it should be, um, because it's very important that the right person, you know, the best person gets that role. But um, yeah, it's a very rigorous process to go through, very rigorous process, which is good news for the RSCS that we take that very seriously. Yeah, so here I am, uh, halfway through my term now. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It nearly. In, does it start in November? Yes. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So we've just um, we just elected our new SVP, actually Tina Paye. Mm-hmm. Um, fantastic. So really great to see another woman in the pipeline, the presidential pipeline as well. That's really positive. So yeah, yeah. It's been it's been a journey, definitely. I can imagine when you threw your hat in the ring to become president were you ever worried about being in the spotlight or being under the microscope and really heavily scrutinized because that that for me is probably one of the big things that would put me off um I I think I wouldn't say I was worried about it but I was very conscious of it Mm -hmm. it's obviously you are the representative of the profession, yeah. the ambassador of the profession. Um, so, of course, you know, you, you you have to act that way. It's a clear part of the role. Um, so I wasn't worried about it um, at all. Um, and, and I had been, you know, exposed to quite a lot of the RICS and what happened and stuff. So I wasn't worried about that. It's, it's, it's the part of the role. You have to be ready to stand up and be counted and be the mm-hmm. representative. That is pretty much being the president. So no, I didn't. I don't think that worried me. I I, I was excited about the opportunity to represent the profession and 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 do my best to to kind of um, you know showcase the brilliant work we do. I would also say there's a lot of support wraps around you. Okay. You know, you start off as senior vice president and you slowly ramp up to the presidential role. There's a lot of support. Um, a lot of people around you, you know, I chats with some past presidents who are always there to support you if you need it. So I felt very supported. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's not a role to go into if you if you shy away from the spotlight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Certainly. Certainly. <laughs> <laughs> I can understand that. Um so question about how COVID-19 threw the world into the world of surveying into a spin. We had last year we had changes to valuations, so material uncertainty. And then we've seen the commercial industry changing at a rate like no other. Then we've seen all of the issues around um the market rising, certain people being left out. What are you seeing at the moment as a result of COVID-19? How has the profession been impacted? Um, so firstly, I think um, the profession has responded magnificently to COVID-19. Absolutely. And we did a piece um, about stories of resilience on our website. Um, which if you want some inspiration, go and have a read of that. Because actually, you know, what one of my observations is, Without surveyors, you know, the built environment would be almost impossible to design, manage, deliver, operate. You know, we, we are really absolutely the glue that holds together the whole of the built environment, wherever or whatever you may do. The office you work in, the house you live in, the hospital you go to, the school your children go to, your telecoms, your water infrastructure, the land that you may graze your ponies upon, we influence everything. So we really underpin the whole fabric of society, I think, as a profession. And I I just don't think we think about that enough, um, actually, and we don't celebrate that enough. So 
I think that surveyors did a magnificent job in holding together a lot of the society's infrastructure over the last 18 months, 12, 18 months. So that's the first thing I would say. But different parts of the profession have been impacted differently mm-hmm. because we're not a homogenous um, profession. We all do slightly different things. So my part of the profession, you know, facilities managers, people working in operational buildings, our challenge has been completely different to that of, let's say, a developer in in the Middle East or, you know, it, it, it's almost impossible for me to answer that question and say this is how the profession's been impacted yeah. because diverse but what I would say is I think the whole profession has proven itself to be very agile very flexible um you know the pickup on technology has been phenomenal um and I think that surveyors have really risen to the challenge of acting for the public advantage in this period as well so whilst I can't tell you how it's impacted everybody some some, some parts of the profession have done very well out of it you know I've been reading articles about some firms that have had their best ever year and then other firms that not so much, you know, um, the SME versus the big corporate, geographical versus discipline. So it's impossible to say how it's impacted everybody, but it's definitely proven us to be a highly resilient, agile, flexible profession. Yeah, that but is, for sure, I think. I, I completely agree with you. The amount of changes that's been made in such a short period of time. Yeah. yeah. But actually, I think it was coming anyway. Do you not think? Some of it, yeah, yeah, slowly. Retail, for example, you know, clearly retail's been struggling for a while and the current situation has accelerated that. But, do you know, one of my clients said something to me last May, which will I'll never forget, and he sat opposite me and he said, well, Kath, he said, together we have done things that I never thought would ever be possible. And you just think, yeah, you're right, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you are right. We you know we've decanted thousands of people. We've shut buildings. We've opened buildings. We've repurposed buildings. Um, you know, we've shifted huge numbers of people around. It's it's just been unbelievable. Yeah, our response. But but yeah, some trends: digital working, retail decline. Um, the house market's gone bonkers in the UK. I don't know what it's like over there in the states, but it's absolutely bonkers at the moment. Um, people moving out of cities when everybody thought everybody was going to move back into cities. It's turned a lot of our assumptions upside down, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's interesting. I, I love it. It means that we've got another period of time, just pure innovation, because we don't know really what the outcome is going to be. And for me, that's a market that I thrive in. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there's a lot of people, unfortunately, I think still in quite uncertain positions around, you know, furlough and workplace and, you know, a lot of people are still worried about health, actual basic health issues. So I, I don't think we're quite, well, we're definitely not out of the woods, but some some positive signs here in the UK anyway of, of mm-hmm. life a little bit back to, well, whatever it's going to be. Yeah. London is much busier than it was a few weeks ago, I can tell you that. So <laughs> I think London will, will absolutely be buzzing again quite soon. Yeah, it's on its way. Yeah. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. Um, so I'm going to have to ask you about this because I don't think any of my fellow surveyors listening would would 
uh, be happy if I didn't. Um, at the moment, it seems like there's a huge divide in the surveying profession, especially with what we've seen in the news. How do you manage dealing with conflicting opinions and still boldly lead the profession forward? How's how? <laughs> um, so so let me tackle that uh, head on then. So so yeah, absolutely, we acknowledge that. Um, we, we've had some feedback from our membership, which is challenging. Yeah. And you'll know, I'm sure, but for the benefit of your listeners who perhaps don't, that we've been running a really extensive consultation since March. And we've had over 8,000 responses to our survey. We've had 103 roundtables. We've had um, over 1,000 written submissions. Uh, lots of emails directly to us so and I've had the privilege of sitting on a number of the round tables and hearing that feedback directly um, myself so so what we've been able to do in terms of reconciling all those opinions we've been able to analyze that information and measure uh, surveyors love measurement so you know um, we've been able to measure that feedback and, and we've given all of that feedback only a few days ago to our governing council who are all elected members, who are all surveyors themselves. And uh, their role is to define the strategy of RSES. Um, and they're now in a process of considering that feedback and deciding how we should change our future strategy. So we've heard really clearly from the profession that we need to be more transparent. Um, we've heard clearly from the profession that they want more engagement and support. And we've heard clearly that we need to step up and lead our voice needs to be louder, bolder, a stronger voice for the profession. So what I can say is that we've absolutely listened. Uh, we've heard that feedback and we will act upon it. Um, so that's, I think, how, how to deal with it is to, is to genuinely, authentically listen and then make some good decisions about what we do next. And that's what we'll do. So... So no doubt it's been challenging feedback, but, you know, the, the time is right for us to act on that and, and move forward. So we will do that. Yeah. Do you think that um, this will cause long-term damage or do you think this is long-term, you know, we're moving towards a better place? Um, you know, with all the press, because I sometimes get my clients asking about it as well. And I'm a bit like, mm, you know, these things happen with every single company but we do get a chance to change it. So, you know, how do we, are we moving forward in the right direction, do you think? Yes, so so I think that this offers us a brilliant opportunity to step back, reflect, mm -hmm. and make sure that our strategy is right going forward. The last time our uh, governing council um, redesigned the strategy was three years ago. The world has changed massively in three years. Mm you know you made the point about trends being accelerated things to the pace of change has just gone boom hasn't it mm -hmm. um so you know even without the negative press um i think it was the right time for us to review the strategy yeah uh, the most pressing issue for surveyors as i see it is climate change we've got eight and a half years left to 2030 um Surveyors must lead the way, I think, in terms of, you know, I talked just a little, uh, little earlier about how surveyors influence the built environment, how we are. Actually, we need to lead the built environment towards 
where we need to get to in terms of net zero and decarbonisation. We've got a really mm-hmm. great role to play in that. So, so I think that I think the time is right. I, I, I believe that um, we will evolve and be stronger as a result of. Um, the, the very intense consultation we've done on the feedback we've had from our members. I really believe that. I think absolutely it's challenging, but I believe that Governing Council will act on it and I believe we will be an even stronger profession going forward. And what is really encouraging is that, you know, 80% of the people that responded um, said that they believed in our purpose. So, you know, promoting the usefulness of the profession, maintaining and advancing the acquisition of knowledge for surveyors, all of that in the public interest, a huge number of our members buy into that. Oh, so yeah. that's that's our compass. That's our direction. We'll focus around that. And, and I think we will be a better, stronger institution and profession for it. Definitely. Yeah. And credit where credit's due to you. Every time, I, at least my experience is I've reached out to you, you answer in person. You actually take the time to come back. So... I mean, yeah. again, you li- you do listen to what we're saying and when we ask questions. I do listen. I try my best to answer everybody that reaches out to me. Um, obviously, there's a lot of people that do that. And uh, apologies to anybody listening who hasn't had a personal response. But yeah, I mean, look, I, I you know, I, I've tried to be the listening president, mm-hmm. the accessible president, because I can be, be you know, because... It, if I'm going to sit in my bedroom all day, I might as well engage with some people that maybe wouldn't have had the opportunity to engage with me before because I'd have been on, you know, big formal events and tours around the country and whatnot. Uh, now I'm not doing that. I just want to try and connect with as many people as possible in the short time that I've got. So I'll tell you what, I did the um, I did the APC roundtable as part of our future and it was so brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant, you know, just to talk to those new entry surveyors and their hopes and for the future and what they want to see. And it's just such a privilege to be able to connect with those people. Yeah, definitely. What do you then think that you've learned about the profession being able to connect with far more of us? That's a really good question. Um, I think what I've learned about our profession is that we're a really diverse bunch of people. Um, you know, I talk to people in in Asia Pac, I talk to people in the States, I talk to people in India, I talk to people, obviously, I talk a lot to people in the UK, I talk to people in their 20s, I talk to people in their 70s, men, women, all genders, um, all ethnicities, religious orientations. Um, I talk to arts and antique surveyors, I talk to quantity surveyors, I talk everything. We are such we are such a mosaic profession. Mm-hmm. That's how I see it. It's a huge mosaic of people uh, doing lots of different things in lots of different places. But what I've really learned is that through everybody in the profession, there is just this passion for ethics, professionalism, high standards, doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. And one of my observations, actually, I said to somebody else is, I've never met a surveyor who doesn't like surveying. It's really weird. I know people in other professions, you know, like accountants or lawyers, and sometimes they go, oh, I really hate being there. I have never met a surveyor who says, I, I don't actually like surveying. No. It's really weird. Genuinely, everybody I meet goes, I just, I love getting out. I love meeting people. I love my part. I love my job. It's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a really unique 
profession in that way, I think. Yes. I agree with that. But it's because you can shape it to be what you want it to be. If I had ever thought when I first started out that I'd run the company that I do today, you could not have told me that that was what was going to be what happened. But after working very closely with my insurers and being like, this is what I want to do. So, you know, it's still a firm of surveyors, but it just operates slightly different than what you'd be used to. I'm like, well, go and give it a try. Why not? See if if that's what you want. And that's exciting. It's a very flexible profession as well, I think. you know, and having the global approach, you can you can take it anywhere. Um, it's very flexible. Uh, you can do just so many different things. You can be client side, you can be supply chain, you can be a consultant, you can be all three, maybe. You know, um, I just think the possibilities are endless in terms of, the, you know, what you can do with it if you want to. You can be a little, an SME working in your local town or you can work in a big corporate in New York and everything in between. It's yeah. fantastically flexible profession, great possibilities. I think that's... And also, I think it's a people profession. So, you know, I've had such a, a great career being able to go different places, meet... I, I think the fact that I go into other people's buildings and other people's um, environments means that I see so much of business in many, many different sectors that I would never have seen in other professions. Because we literally, we go there, don't we? We go to site, we go and look at stuff. You know, I've been inside the Large Hadron Collider in CERN. I've been at the top of power stations. I've been, you know, in data centres in in different parts of the world. Uh, I've seen so many amazing things that I would never see if I was just in, in a different profession. So yeah and you get to find out about people because it's your job to know what people want to do why do you want to do it why do you want to get there yeah yeah and and a lot of people bring other people's visions to life don't they and you kind of let you know even if it's as simple as I'm coming to survey your new house that person's got a dream of what they're trying to achieve and you're part of enabling that yeah yeah Yeah. right up to you know maybe the QS is working on HS2, they're making something happen mm-hmm. for people. It's a great thing, yeah. Yeah. And every time you talk to a new surveyor or a different surveyor, I find that especially within my network and expanding my network as well, I ask people questions about what they do. Or, you know, I say, oh, I'm doing this project at the moment. What would you do with it? And getting someone else's opinion who is probably, well, they are equally as creative and common sense driven as you are, but they come at it from a different perspective. I always yeah. say to my students at UCM, you're never going to get two surveyors who come up with exactly the same idea because we've all got such, we're thinking about things from so many different angles. And that's the beauty of the profession. Yeah, yeah. There's so much expertise, absolutely. But I think you hit on something there. It's a very practical profession. And that's what I mean about making something happen. Mm-hmm. Um, most people I know who are surveyors are very practical we want to make something happen we're solutions oriented um and that's a really that I, that really appeals to me I'm not a theorist I want to make things happen and uh yeah, I want I want to create a solution I want to yeah I want to see something changed or I want to see something fixed <laughs> and I also quite enjoy it when it doesn't quite go right as well it's never the end of the world I've got an end goal and if it doesn't go quite the right way, that's okay. We can go again. Uh, I think I think a lot of surveyors are natural problem solvers, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. yeah. 
we have to be because it's complex as well a lot of what we do so it's not never going to be absolutely simple and perfect a lot of it so but yeah there's a lot of problems sort of natural problem solvers are attracted to sustain I think yeah. <laughs> yeah agreed can I ask how are so there's a lot in the press about the cladding scandal and one of the big issues is that there's a waiting list for surveyors of like 10 years who can come out and do appropriate inspections fill out the EW1S S1 sorry EWS1 yes EWS1 are the RACS actively going to put something together where they can train um, more of these types of surveyors how will that work in practice going forward um, yeah, absolutely. So uh, we have um, launched a new training programme to build that capacity. Okay. Um, so uh, we've launched it quite recently. Um, and that's to make sure, obviously, that we try and uh, build that capacity in the profession for chartered building and building control surveyors to progress their knowledge in fire safety, help homeowners um, to, to resolve these issues. So absolutely, um, that, that course is there, that's open. I think um, we've had over a thousand registrations so far. Wow. For the Maybe even more by now. That was back in February, we had over a thousand. So, so absolutely, we are really, really focused on this. And I think, um, you know, we've done a huge amount of fantastic work on fire, international fire safety standards, which um, it, I'm really proud of what we've done. I, I've not had any personal role in that. I, I, I hasten to add, I'm not an expert in that field, but um, there's been some great work done there. Um, and I think the fact that we are working with government in the UK as, as the lead authority really to, to kind of find our way through this problem, which is quite a significant problem for a lot of homeowners. So yeah, we we, um, we are providing the training. We've had over a thousand sign up for it. So hopefully we can build that capacity, absolutely. How long does the training take, do you know? Um, I'm not sure, actually. Um, anybody that's interested can definitely find more detail on our website. <laughs> so <laughs> that's all there. Um, um, so I don't know off the top of my head. Is it, does it only open for a certain uh, type of surveyor or could any of the surveyors listening go and do the training course? So actually, I think it takes a couple of months. Um, just to say, um, I think it's primarily focused at building surveyors and building control surveyors because, of course, that would be the, you know, the natural part mm -hmm. of our profession that would address that. So, I think that foundational knowledge of building surveying is probably quite useful in that field. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So a couple of months. So hopefully, you know, if we can get people through it, then um, then we should be able to have a fix for that in the reasonable short term. Yeah, and do the RACS then work with the insur the professional indemnity insurers to because I know for sure that I've had to sign my PII that says I do not work with on advising about cladding. Well, I wouldn't. I'm not a building surveyor. That's nothing to do with what I do. But then does it, does the RACS then work with insurers about what clauses needed to go in policies, or is that insurers? separately to the RACS I don't know yeah. how that works yeah so um so we've been doing a lot of work on professional indemnity in the UK as well um we've just produced um a new statement actually on the 8th of April 
um, about the PI insurance requirements. Um, and there has been some changes made to the approved minimum wording and the terms. So I would encourage everybody who's concerned about that to check that out. The, the guidance statement is on the website. Um, so I think under the new terms, insurers aren't permitted um, without specific dispensation to exclude fire safety claims um, on a property four storeys or less. But uh, again, I'm not an expert, so it's really important that anybody that is concerned about that needs to go to the website and get mm -hmm. the actual guidance on it. But it's definitely an area that we're working on, and we we recognise that's a challenge for surveyors as well now. So, yeah. Yeah, PI is a big challenge, isn't it? Yeah. Huge challenge. Yeah. <laughs> Once you've got a good you've got good professional indemnity, you keep hold of them because you've worked with them. For, I Especially with mine, I, I've worked with them for so many years now that I don't want to lose out on that if I had to go to a new insurer I'd have to explain it all again so yeah it's a big yeah, yeah but my, my husband's a sole practitioner actually so um yeah I know about this <laughs> <laughs> holding on to his PI as well yeah. as a, he's a surveyor too by the way so oh are your children yeah. surveyors I wonder no no um, no, no they're not no, no no my son's an engineer okay yeah, so Close. <laughs> Keeping women in the industry seems to be a, a bit of an ongoing struggle at the moment. I see it in a lot of my friends. You know, we we have these WhatsApp groups because we've all worked together at a certain period of time or we've found each other. And so we keep each other going. But how do we make the industry a more inclusive, friendlier place? There's always um a large discussion around workplace bullying or people trying to get ahead and then it's it's kind of like well am I silly for thinking it like this is this actually the place that I want to be in is this what I need to do how do we keep people in the industry and I'm specifically talking about women because the whatsapp group that I'm in is full of women I know that some men also struggle with this as well yeah so so I don't think those sorts of problems you're describing are unique to the built environment professions, of course. No. Um, so, so I think there's a few things. I think the most important thing for me in, in trying to retain our female talent is to ensure that they can reach their full potential. Mm -hmm. So people, not everybody wants to get promoted constantly not not everybody's got you know ambitions to be the chief exec that's absolutely fine um i think i think you 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 have the right to make your own decisions about where you want your career to go but if you are ambitious and you do want to progress um i think there's there becomes a challenge for women as you become more senior so i think it's quite interesting that the gender pay gap doesn't really kick in until you're 40 so up till that point there is no gender pay gap so clearly something happens to women at that point in their careers where, you know, they've been, they've got 20 years experience, effectively, leave university at 21, let's say. There's a sweeping generalisation, by the way, but if we make that assumption that you've got about 20 years experience by that time, that's normally when you're, you'll start to think, I think, about a more senior director level type role, perhaps. Um, and that's when the gender pay gap kicks in. So I think that more and, and I think that's when people get frustrated with their careers when actually they can't progress because they've hit that wall um, for whatever reason 
So what I would really like to see is inclusive hiring practices, inclusive recruitment practices um, at that level, because th there is no barrier to progression until you get to about that point, it seems. If you take the gender pay gap as um, an objective measurement, which I think we can. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really incumbent on firms and senior people to have really inclusive recruitment practices and to be sure that the way that they hire senior people into those roles doesn't somehow um, discriminate unconsciously or consciously against women. Yeah. A lot of senior roles are still very much about your network or about who you worked with before or about who you are able to socialise with, etc. And I think there's a natural challenge for women there because a lot of networking events are in the evening. A lot of networking events are centred around alcohol, uh, around traditionally male activities like golf or rugby or football or just being out late, <laughs> which for a lot of women is a bit of a challenge, you know. <laughs> it's We saw, you know, the terrible tragedy in the UK where that young woman was, um, was murdered going home at half past nine at night, you know. I think we have to think about if we're going to have a, a networking event where people are building senior relationships and all the women are stood there thinking, how am I going to get home? I need to leave yeah. now. 10 o'clock. I don't want to be on that 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock train. I'm afraid the men just not thinking about that. No, no. You know, I, so those are the things for me, those structural things about how we network, how we build relationships, how we socialise. And then, therefore, how we are hiring our senior people, how the headhunters work. Like, for example, I had, uh, I'm recruiting a really great role at the moment um, for head of bids and proposals. And I got five um, CVs last week, were all men. And, and I immediately said, no, sorry, you need to send me five CVs, of which at least two and preferably three are women. And I want to see a much more diverse shortlist. Don't send me that again. Mm -hmm. uh, I wonder how many people are, are being that direct about it, if I'm honest. So it's up to us all at my level, especially, to be really, really focused on non-negotiables like shortlists must be gender balanced, at least gender balanced, ideally ethnicity balanced. Um, we must make sure that when we are networking and building relationships that we do that in an inclusive way. Um, so that everybody's got equal access to senior people and sponsorship and mentorship. Mm -hmm. Those are the two things that I really feel would enhance the opportunities for women in our profession. And I think if people feel they've got opportunities, they will stay. Yeah. Yeah. Because you can then start doing what you want to do. Or I, I mean, it gets to a point where you start worrying about what happens when you have children and how does that work and how do you fit in with things and you know if you take maternity leave well does someone come up and do your job and then are you behind it's all of these kind of things that yeah. also make people think well do I really yeah. want to yeah I mean I had my children when I was quite young I was in my early 20s mm -hmm. and at that point in my career taking a year off didn't matter I could pop back in quite easily at the same level and then just crack on. Um, but it was very difficult. You know, my childcare costs were half my salary at one point, half my net salary at one point. But I kept going 
because I thought, well, one day these kids are going to be grown up and I want a career that that's important yeah. to me. Uh, but I worked part time till my youngest was 11. Um, and in that whole period, my career didn't really progress. No. Impossible. I mean, I'm going back quite a long time, but it was very difficult to get promoted if you were part time. Mm-hmm. I think that might have changed now, but uh, I'm not sure it has. No. And then the other difficulty with that is then you're taking part-time pension contributions and that then has a knock-on effect for wealth later on in life. If Yes, and as speaking of someone who's not that far away from the pension <laughs> becoming a reality, I would entirely encourage all young women who might be on this podcast to put as much money as you can into your pension. <laughs> because you know- it will certainly give you choices later on in life, uh, options, Yeah. <laughs> Actually, one of the, from very early in my career, at the time, one of my uh, one of my bosses said to me, Natasha, as a woman, you have to go out and buy property. You manage property for people. You have to go out and buy property because what are you going to do when you have kids? You're not going to have that pension plan. And I kind of thought, wow, the big assumption. Yes. <laughs> I also then thought okay well if I start doing that now brilliant you know I've but there's not enough men in the industry who ever go out of their way to say that or who would ever even realize it yeah yeah it's really important I mean we're kind of going all over the place here aren't we with this here but we are. it is as someone approaching the end of their career it, it is crucial that you do that late stage career planning for your wealth and finances so that you have options later on You've got to, I've always felt that I've, I always want to have options. Mm-hmm. I'm in control of my career and in control of what I want to do. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a lot of hours if you're not happy. So it's really important, as a, especially as a woman, I think, to put yourself in a position where you've got options. Yeah. Um, and you don't feel trapped, which I'm very lucky. I'm, I love my job, but... Um, you know, clearly I don't want to work forever so <laughs> yeah exactly exactly you need to figure that out as well I've been doing a lot of talking about that on the podcast as as well just making sure that everybody's equipped to you know move forward the last 12 months has shown us is um you just don't know what's going to happen so trying to get yourself in a position where you've got you know, a, a financial base that's stable that you can cope with uncertainties, very important for women, especially, I think, because, you know, uh, women have been much more impacted by it career-wise and um, financially by COVID than men. Mm-hmm. Just a fact. So, you know, a lot, a lot of women have taken a financial hit. Mm-hmm. Okay, so second to last question. Um, yeah. How do we also deal when we're thinking about, you know, we work hard, how do we create these healthier work-life balances in the in the industry? And I think I'll, I'll also ask you the last question at the same time. What can we do in 2021 to make the industry a more positive place? Are, the, are there any initiatives we can get involved in? What can we do as surveyors to keep this fabulous industry to be in? So... Um, it's quite interesting what you think about work-life balance. Um, uh, so this guy that um, is a leadership coach with our business called Drew Povey, great guy. And uh, he, funnily enough, we were talking about this yesterday. 
And he said that, and it really resonated with me, he said, I don't like the term work-life balance because work is part of my life. Mm-hmm. But what we perhaps need to think about is work-home balance. Yeah. And actually, you know, and work is a very big part of my life. It's a big part of my identity. It's a big part of who I am. But what I know is that if I really do not focus on my home life at the same time as my work life, then I start to suffer in both, really. So there's another great little saying, uh, which is boundaries are the things that help me love myself and my job at the same time. And it's very true. Um, So for me, I think everybody's boundaries are different. Mm -hmm. Um, Where you want to set those boundaries are different and there'll be different boundaries at different times in your career, but you've got to have some boundaries. You've got to have a point where you say, now I stop work and now I switch on to my home life. And then vice versa, now I switch off my home life and I'll switch on to my work. Mm-hmm. But to never switch on to home life and always be always on work-wise, I think is really bad for mental health. And many of us have, um, you know, my boundaries over the last 12 months have been very fuzzy, but they've had to be because of the situation we've been in mm-hmm. and also the responsibilities I've got. Um, and I accept that and I, I've created, I'm happy with that. But um You've got to find your boundary and stick to it. Yeah. Otherwise, you become resentful and exhausted. And, you know, exhaustion is not a badge of honour. Absolutely not. I, I think trying to get that boundary right is really important. So I certainly do that. And in terms of, you know, help and support around that, um, Lionheart are absolutely brilliant. I'm the As the president, I'm just privileged to be the patron of Lionheart. Um, but they do some really great work around mental health, stress awareness, um, you know, work-life balance, work-home balance. Um, so I'd encourage anybody that's struggling with this to reach out to Lionheart. They're there for everybody and um, they're a wonderful part of our institution. So, but yeah, I'd set your boundaries and stick to them religiously, I say, because eventually you'll be fed up at home and fed up at work. So... <laughs> And that's no way to live your life, is it? You know? No. <laughs> it's really difficult, isn't it? Especially if you're in the ascendancy of your career and you're trying to push on, it's difficult. But, mm-hmm. yeah, burnout is a real problem. So, And so your question about one thing. What can we do this year, 2021, to make the industry a more positive place? Any initiatives we can get involved in? What, what can we do as surveyors? Wow, that's a massive question, Natasha. <laughs> um, so, so I would say, if I was to say one thing I think surveyors need to focus on now, it, it really is climate change. Okay. It really is. It's yeah. really urgent. Yeah. Really. And I think that um, I would encourage all surveyors to look at their day-to-day practice mm-hmm. and think about how can what I am doing contribute to a more positive, sustainable future? How can the little things I'm doing or the big things I'm doing, what can I change in my advice to clients? What can I change in my day-to-day job that that, that takes us forward in terms of attacking the climate change crisis? Mm-hmm. That's what I think everybody should be focused on this year and probably for nearly every year. For the next 10 years unfortunately it's it's mm-hmm. it's really pressing mm-hmm. um so there's other things you know 
and I think technology and diversity are the other two things for me to focus on. We need technology because that will help us deal with climate change. And we need diversity because we need all the talent in our profession to attack the big challenges ahead, all the talent from all walks of life. So we need to get ourselves in a place where we're attracting the most, the brightest and the best, because, you know, just linking back to what I said at the beginning about the way we influence the world, we need the smartest people to be surveyors to influence the world in a positive way. Kath, that was awesome. Thank uh, you so much for coming on the podcast today. I really, really appreciate it. It's entirely my pleasure, Natasha. Thank you so much. Thank you. And for everybody who's listening, if you've loved this podcast, please don't forget to leave it a rating and a review because we want to hear from you. And if you've got any comments, come on over to Instagram at Honest Property Investment. Leave me a comment and I will come back to you. Thank you so much for listening today. I cannot wait to catch up with you again soon.